0: Very happy. Welcome back to Forward Guidance, Sam Burns, founder of Mill Street Research. Sam, great to see you. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me back on, Jack.
0: It's my pleasure, Sam. I do have to roll out the uh, forward guidance red carpet for you. You came on in the winter of January, February of this year, and you were very constructive on stocks. You were not forecasting recession, and so far, that's how it has happened. Stocks have trounced bonds. Stocks have had a very positive year even with the little uh, unease we have the, the jitters we have in the market right now and but bonds have fallen out of bed so uh, congratulations on the good call before we get into Thank earnings you. season where, where you, know, you do a lot of special work where no one really else is doing what you're doing on, on, on earnings season but just let's stick with the, the macro how are you thinking about asset allocation right now and how that pertains to the economy
1: yeah you're right I mean most of this year I've been uh, you know overweight stocks, underweight bonds, um, thinking the economy would do better than people expected, which turned out to not be hard just because everyone had such a negative opinion about the the economy and earnings coming into the year. I think a lot of that has now kind of been adjusted. People are, are less a lot less bearish on the economy and earnings than they, than they were at the start of the year. But I still think there's a fair amount of skepticism out there. And particularly even just in the last month or two, we've seen that kind of come back. Back around probably July, we saw a fair amount of optimism. The market had done well. And earnings have been good the first and second quarters. So that kind of got people maybe a little bit over optimistic. And now that's that's kind of corrected again. So my guess is the economy will still hold up pretty well going into in the next year, but it'll, you know, it'll gradually slow down. And so I think it's still worth, you know, being somewhat overweight stocks relative to bonds, but maybe less so than I would have been uh, at the start of the year. We've lost some of the, the momentum in equities lately and bond yields are now high enough. To be more attractive, frankly, just real money buyers are going to look at a 45 or 5% bond yield, even on treasuries, and you can get higher than that on, on corporates, and think that that looks pretty good if you think inflation is going to come down and the economy will be okay, but not, not quite so strong anymore, that bonds are no longer overvalued. They're maybe closer to fair value now. So Now, bonds are still very volatile, so I would be a little hesitant about the long end of the curve, but the shorter term, the short end of the curve looks a little more attractive now.
0: Yeah, n- nothing wrong with that, that two-year. So tell us about, about earnings expectations. I feel like this quarter, Apple just reported, all the big companies have reported, the banks let, let us off, the banks are having a lot of issues just looking at the stock prices. I feel like anecdotally, what I've seen is a company report a good quarter and then go down 10%. And I feel like some of these companies, the stocks at least, the stocks are dropping like flies, even as the company's earnings are resilient and actually go- going up. Does your overall, I mean, you track every single company pretty much. Does that, does my anecdotal observation comport with that data of companies actually are doing okay with regards to earnings and they're beating expectations? But as we both know, I mean, stocks are, stocks are, yeah, SP is down about 10% from, from the summer.
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely been some of that. I think the, like I say, I think the first and second quarter earnings were really strong, much stronger than expected and forced analysts to raise their estimates in response to those uh, earnings reports. I think this third quarter, analysts had kind of caught up to where companies were and were no longer kind of lowballing the numbers uh, as much. And so there wasn't as much of an upside surprise. And so you said I had a lot more mixed response when the numbers actually come out. Yeah, they were better than consensus, as they often are, but not to the degree that they were in previous last couple of quarters. And the guidance that some of them have given is a little more mixed than it had been you know, previously. And some of that reflects higher interest rates, both in terms of the effect on earnings, but also the effect on the stock prices that we've seen this big, they saw this big surge in bond yields in the last, you know, just in the last couple of months until just the last couple of days, I guess. And that, I think, has been a, a big headwind for stock prices in general. And it's been an excuse to kind of knock a lot of these stocks, particularly some of the ones that had been up a lot, knock them down, even if their earnings were good. And certainly if their earnings weren't good, then they got knocked down so I think some of it is kind of the macro influence of, of interest rates, making investors a little more willing to sell stocks, regardless of the earnings news. And the fact that some of the earnings news was not as big a surprise as it was in the first couple of quarters, which kind of on a relative basis looked like a letdown, even if it's actually still decent.
0: And what are you seeing overall in in earnings? I mean, you said the beat rate, I think before this conversation started, you said it was is 80%, which sounds good. But- companies are always lowballing themselves so that they can beat a a too low estimate. But then also, are are analysts raising their estimates or lowering them? And how does that factor into your somewhat bullish, but not nearly as bullish as you were at the beginning of this year, outlook?
1: Yeah, no, I think the the beat rate so far for the S&P 500 has been about 80%. And historically, it tends to be in the sort of mid-70s, 70% range. So it is somewhat better than than even the historical averages, the sort of playing that game that the analysts play. It's been a pretty good quarter so far. I think that sort of the, the, the magnitude of the beats and the, the distribution has been a little bit less than it was in, in previous quarters. And so I think the response by analysts has been a little bit more mixed. You've seen more of a balance between stocks that have been getting upgrades for their forward estimates and stocks that have been getting downgrades or, or, or kind of leaving estimates where they were. Whereas after Q1 and Q2, you saw pretty broad-based jumps across a lot of stocks, seeing analysts lift their forecasts for the the remainder of the year or next year. So to me, it's more the fact that the estimates for, say, 2024 are holding up. This would normally be about the time that analysts would start to cut their estimates for 2024 because there's that kind of pattern where they, they kind of start at a high optimistic number when they're looking at a year, year and a half, looking well into the future. And then as they get closer, they start to kind of trim their numbers to bring them down to closer to kind of maybe reality. And this year we've seen there's been a little bit of that, but overall the earnings estimates have held up. And so in the sense that normally they would be cutting them for next year, they're not, or they're at least holding steady. That's relatively speaking a pretty good result, particularly given where interest rates are and the fact that the Fed has been so aggressive and tightening that that would normally be a reason to be cutting estimates. But I think that the offset has been kind of fiscal policy and the uh, the tailwinds that that's produced for the economy so a lot of the industrials, some financials, some technology, anything related to kind of building and manufacturing have held up a lot better than people expected. And that's where some of the upgrades have been coming from. And you're talking about
0: analysts' expectations of companies earnings. So when you say companies in the financial sector are held holding up, you're not talking about their stocks because we know a lot of them are having a lot of challenges in terms of just the stocks are kind of falling out of bed, but you're saying the actual earnings expectations are holding in. What's what stands out to you looking either at stock market by uh, market cap is oh, all the big caps are, are beating out small caps are having issues? Or oh, is it the airlines and the banks are having issues, but other companies are, are doing great in terms of the dispersion. And I, I know your ranking is MAER. Mayor. So r- remind us what, what that stands for. What stands out to you? What's interesting?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. And yeah, the MAR, the mayor, is the monitor of analysts' earnings revisions. So it's really a way to comprehensively track what analysts are doing with their forward 12 months earnings forecasts. So I don't really care what the analyst stock rates the stock a buy, hold, or sell. That's kind of irrelevant to me. All I really want to know is are the earnings forecasts going up or going down, and by how much? Because that's really the first thing that analysts will do is change their earnings forecasts, and that will reflect all the news that might be coming in from either the company itself or the industry that they're in or the macro picture, all that kind of gets built into the earnings forecast that analysts have. And so even if analysts tend to be more optimistic on average than they should be in some cases in terms of their the level of their forecasts, when they change them, the, the delta, the change in the estimates... Has kind of is where the news is. That's where the kind of you see new news coming into the market shows up uh, in their earnings forecasts. And so when you see them raising estimates, that means there's been some sort of surprise that's caused them to to have to lift their numbers. And when they cut, then that means there's been some sort of new negative surprise that's caused them to to reduce estimates. And those tend to be persistent. Uh, once they start moving in one direction, they have a tendency to keep going in that direction for months at a time. And that's kind of the underlying idea behind a lot of what I do is looking for those trends as they develop in the earnings forecasts, both for individual companies and for industries or sectors or or even the overall market, um, that you can can kind of see how those fundamental trends are developing. And they're a lot less volatile than stock prices. Stock prices can be moved around for all kinds of reasons and are much harder to kind of get a a clear trend in a lot of times. But the earnings trends are much more consistent and and kind of um, predictable in that way. And that's why they can give you kind of the the fundamental anchor for which way things are moving. And then you can, you know, kind of overweight the stocks or the industries that are doing well and look maybe underweight the ones that are doing uh, poorly. So, yeah, in terms of what's doing well right now and what's been doing well in the work in terms of the earnings forecasts, a lot of this relative strength has been in anything related to construction, building, kind of manufacturing, all those kind of things, the construction engineering group, the building products machinery, all those things that are maybe industrials kind of names are all taking advantage of that kind of manufacturing renaissance that we're having, that all the the electric vehicle or plants that are being built or uh, batteries or uh, all the infrastructure spending that came out of the Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, all that is kind of moving through the economy and showing up in a lot of these industrial kind of manufacturing related companies. And so that's been a, a pattern and still is. And the fact that the the residential housing market has has held up remarkably well as showing up still a lot of the home builders have held up, even though their stock prices have been pretty volatile uh, because of interest rates. And so, and then some of the tech names, a lot of the software and services type names have have held up uh, pretty well. Some of them are expensive. Some of them get knocked around a lot of uh, volatility wise, but they have the strongest earnings revisions in a lot of ways. So in some ways they've earned their their valuations, but that's kind of where we've seen relative strength. Some of the kind of commodity tied companies, particularly outside of oil, have been weak. Some of the healthcare names have been weak. Utilities have been kind of underperforming, and, and then transportation related areas like airlines and trucking have been under pressure lately as well. So, like I say, there's been a lot of dispersion and winners and losers. That's kind of how it looks right now. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. You you kind
0: of first learn of there's a risk on environment where bonds rally and. Your bonds do better than stocks, utilities companies do better than industrial companies. But we, we are not seeing that. I mean, industrial companies are, are crushing utilities, Utilities are doing poorly, you know, so it's that, that risk-off trade. And then you said about oh, home builders. Okay. So home builders, everyone, including myself, thought that it was it was a really tough business last year as interest rates rose. The housing market has been really resilient because demand for new homes was robust and the supply of existing homes because no one wanted to leave. So, so we know that. So yeah, stock, the home building stocks were on a tear this year, but as you said, they have, they have fallen somewhat sharply over the past, let's say few months are the fundamentals in terms of the earnings estimates. Are they going up or down or what's going on with the home builders?
1: Yeah, the home builders and kind of that household durable space had been very strong kind of all year I'm just looking here now at the uh, the recent readings, but they've held up, I guess, much better than most people expected them to, given what interest rates have done. I think what we're saying now is that interest rates are now finally, after however many months it's been, starting to catch up to them. So we started to see some deterioration in the pace of earnings estimates for the household durables area. So that's one area where you had this long stretch of time when they did better than expected for the reasons you just outlined, that you couldn't find an existing house to buy, so you're buying a new house. But now it's finally kind of caught up to them a little bit that the affordability, for, particularly for new kind of first-time buyers, has really been an issue. So, so I think that's one area where it's starting to, to slip a bit. But incomes are still rising. And that's the thing, is that consumers still have money to spend. And if you look at the price of homes relative to incomes by themselves, they're not that bad. It's the financing cost that's yeah, the problem. Yeah. It's, the, it's the more it's when you get a mortgage and you have to pay 7 or 8% interest rate, that's the issue. And so that affects different people in different regions of the country and so forth in, in different ways at different times. And that's what you're seeing, I think, lately. I think that's been one area where it has had less support from maybe their kind of federal infrastructure spending and has had more support from kind of just consumers having the income to, to buy houses, but are now facing those kind of high mortgage rates. And that started to, to to trim demand back back again. Do you expect that to slow the economy down? Because, okay, everyone
0: who was super bearish on housing a year ago, they were wrong. They were early, but being early, I you mean, know, it was the same thing as being wrong. But do you think eventually that, that will take place just in 2024 instead of 2023?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the, the housing market will slow down. And I think at some point, that kind of log jam we've been seeing where no one wants to sell and the people that want to buy aren't willing to really pay up enough or don't want to take on an 8% mortgage to do it eventually that'll that'll have to have to break there will be some new, new supply of existing houses will come along and the demand our ability to buy new houses will 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 dip so i don't think the housing market will itself kind of fall apart i just think there'll be some a bigger a better balance between the kind of buyers and sellers and more activity as as a sort of log jam gets broken but it'll take time and really just the fact that mortgage rates went so far so fast just shook everything about the whole housing market to its core to some degree. So mortgage underwriting has been fallen through the roof, fallen through the floor, and uh, there's basically very little activity there. That'll have to balance out. Inventory is low, housing activity is low, houses are being built, but uh, there's still a lot of restrictions in what you can and can't build in a lot of, build in a lot of places. So it, there's only certain parts of the country where that's happening. So I think it's a very kind of split market right now. There's been more apartments being built than single family houses for a while, relatively speaking. So there's a lot of different things going on, but I think it'll probably shake itself out. I don't think it's going to bring the economy down, but I do think it will be a, a net drag rather than a net benefit. And what
0: about the banks? What about the financial sector?
1: The banks, they got hit really hard and beat up badly earlier in the year. March, of course, when the Silicon Valley Bank stuff and all that hit. They've actually been looking a lot better lately than they had. They've been on the very bottom of my industry ranks where I'm looking at all the revisions and all the, the price rankings and everything. And now they're kind of they've drifted up towards the middle. Some of the big banks, higher kind of JP Morgan's and stuff like that, have been highly ranked and are doing well. Uh, a lot of the regional banks are still struggling, partly because of the bonds that they own, which they just were on the wrong side of the interest rate trade, and also because of their exposure to commercial real estate, where they had lent money to a lot of the office buildings and things that are having trouble right now. So I think, again, they'll they'll be able to work through it. It's not a systemic problem, but it is a problem for some of the banks that are exposed to those uh, particular areas a- in particular ways. And so I've been looking more at some of the banks that are less exposed to that or th- that are bigger and more diversified and some things like insurance where they can take advantage of better pricing and insurance and also getting earning higher rates on their bond portfolios.
0: Yeah, insurance is, is an interesting industry right now. I haven't really dug into it. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty complicated to me. To me, it's a lot more complicated than the banks. But well, yeah, yeah, definitely. What, what about commercial real estate? I mean, so much ink has been spilled worrying about it. And you see the deterioration in the fundamentals. On the balance sheet, you people don't take that loss until they, until they take that loss. And it's really going very slowly. So I know there's no like commercial real estate ETF, and it would, it's across the various industries. But uh, what do you see there?
1: Yeah, and there, what I'm mostly looking at it, it would be the, the REITs, uh, the real estate investment trusts that are tied to some of the office or different types of real estate. And so, there are definitely some that are still quite weak in terms of REITs, but there are some that are starting to, what I think of as kind of less bad, meaning that, that for a long, long time, analysts were cutting estimates right and left for for almost all the REITs. Their their stock prices were getting clobbered because they both faced people not coming back to the office because of COVID and everything, working from home. And higher interest rates, so they had a kind of a double whammy going on now you're starting to see a little bit more separation some areas some of the industrial type REITs that that are for manufacturing and and kind of warehouses and things like that some of those are doing better, and some of the even some of the retail reITs uh, shopping centers and things that had gotten really hammered are doing maybe less bad in some areas where the worst might be over so it's not that they're doing well, but that once the kind of the uh, the worst of the the sentiment has started to, to turn and, and it starts to get less bad. There may be contrarian opportunities in some of those areas, but you have to be very selective and kind of picky about it. You can't go in there and just kind of buy it all because there are still a lot of areas that, that are weak and are having to work through those balance sheet issues and that you mentioned. And the same thing is true for, for banks. Some of them are, are still exposed to those losses and haven't recognized them yet officially, but they're still there. So I think you have to pick and choose, but I think because people have gotten so negative on a lot of them and, and forced the stock prices down so far, some of the bad news may already be in ban- those stocks.
0: So what is the worst sector or subsector right now? If you said for a while it was banks, but it is no longer, what is tr- like truly the worst?
1: One of the ones that's been weak, in, in addition to some of the, the real estate investment trusts, which are still down there at the bottom, there's been some of the uh, what healthcare stocks uh, fall into the life science tools and services industry. So those are a lot of the Companies that are not providing healthcare per se, but that are providing a lot of the, the tools and systems and things. And they reflect a lot of the spending that's kind of been cut from the healthcare sector as a result of post-COVID that they're that that are not uh, able to keep up the same spending. And a lot of them are money losing companies that relied on low interest rates and maybe private equity or venture capital or that kind of funding to, to keep them going. They're the more kind of aggressive early stage companies that, that might be struggling now. So anything like that where there's a, a dependence on that kind of easy money has has, has hurt them. And other, other areas that are weak are things that are tied to some of the commodities outside of oil. So the, a lot of some of the industrial metals, chemicals, things like that in the material sector are relatively weak. And a lot of that is tied partly to higher interest rates and things like that, but also China. Uh, China, of course, has been struggling a lot. Their economy has, has slowed and the demand that they've had for Commodities globally, all kinds of commodities, uh, including oil, but steel and iron and copper and uh, everything has been much lower, kind of recently this cycle than in past cycles. So some of that was COVID, of course, but now even after COVID, there's just no, not the demand from China that they've had for 20 or 30 years, and that's being kind of felt globally across a lot of different sectors, including a lot of those that are directly tied to those commodities. So a lot of those are more uh, low ranked in, in my work right now. To track. Chinese stocks based
0: on earnings estimates? And number one, what are you seeing there? Number two, do you have any issues where the reporting, the analysts, they, they might get fired if they have a negative? Note? I'm not saying that dynamic doesn't exist, not exist in America, it definitely does, but it, it's different.
1: Yeah, you're right. No, and I do try, track uh, Chinese stocks. And what I've seen consistently for, for a long time now is that the, the earnings estimate trends that I follow globally, have been unusually weak in, in China. the the whole China, Hong Kong space, the average Chinese stock has weaker earnings estimate trends than certainly than the US, but even than sort of the global average. And so that tells me that outside of a few, maybe uh, big cap Chinese stocks that have held up the tech-related ones, sometimes that have have held up, most Chinese stocks are not doing well in terms of their earnings forecasts. And I don't know if Chinese analysts behave significantly differently than, than other analysts, but they, in aggregate, have not been afraid to cut estimates. They've been going down And so that's told me that Chinese stocks and emerging market stocks kind of in general have been relatively weak in terms of their earnings trends for quite some time. So I've been underweight EM and China in particular for a long time and still am. I don't really see any signs that things are getting a lot better there. I don't think that the Chinese government is going to be able to stimulate the economy the way they did in past cycles. Maybe 2015, 16, there was some period where they did some pretty big stimulus to go out and, and really drive their economy. Uh, I don't think they have the scope to do that anymore or the willingness to do it. They've done some things, but I don't think they have the ability to do that to the same degree they did historically. And so I'm seeing it in the kind of bottom-up data and also in kind of the macro data you see out of China, where they're struggling with a lot of debt and real estate issues and never really kind of came back strong from, from COVID. And so I think I would probably shy away from from trying to get too heavily into China or emerging markets. Sometimes it looks like they're cheap, but I don't think they they really... are are, are cheap relative to their, their potential growth.
0: Hey everyone, we're about to get back in the action, but before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high frequency traders. They'll all be converging at digital asset summit, London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all a mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated forward guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode. So gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. And so you, you talked about a lot of the sectors in America that are weak. So our are, are earnings expectations for 2024 inaccurate, are they going up or are they, have they st- stopped going down? Tell us what sort of the aggregate numbers indicate, as well as how that correlates to just overall prices for the S&P.
1: Right. So I'd say that recently the earnings estimates for the S&P 500 index, the aggregate, have been pretty stable for 2024. And so, and now we're almost over, 2023 is almost over, but they have been coming in as well as, or a little better than expected. And so their estimates are still looking for about 11 or 12% earnings growth for the index for next year. And that's actually held up. And so, like I say, normally you would expect that number to be coming down about now. This is kind of the time of year when you'd expect those numbers to start getting trimmed. And the fact that they have not been trimmed much tells you that, that the numbers are actually pretty firm. Uh, and that the guidance that they're getting from companies, even now that we're approaching the end of the year, has been pretty solid in aggregate. So again, some winners and some losers but no big sign of a, of, a, of, a, of a real kind of falling off a cliff or a real rollover. And so the, the relative strength is definitely been in the large caps relative to small caps. And so particularly big tech, but, but also big companies across the board, not just the tech companies. And so we've been seeing that for, for quite a while. And historically, that's always been the case. Large companies tend to hold up better than small companies just because they have better access to financing. They're just more diversified, tend to be more stable, have more global exposure. And that's, I think, been a big benefit for a lot of them lately is that if you're a big profitable large cap, you don't really need to borrow money typically as much as a small company would. And if you do, you can get better terms for it and you're more globally diversified. So weakness in one particular area won't hurt you as much as it would if you're a small company and you're more less diversified, more focused in one specific area. So, So I've been overweight large caps relative to small caps, and I can see that in the earnings estimate data as well that the larger companies are, in fact, doing better fundamentally than the small companies. And that's both across sectors and within sectors in many cases.
0: And earlier, you said normally this is the time of year where downgrades would happen for the the fiscal year 2024. Do you mean like every year that happens or in a year where there's going to be a slowdown either in earnings, just an earnings slowdown or an outright recession, this is when it happens?
1: I would say in general, there's kind of a typical cycle to the way analysts behave over the course of a year. And like I say, when you earlier this year, they would have been putting out their initial 2024 forecasts, which were kind of a, a guess at some point, early in 2023, they would be looking out quite a ways. Now that now that 2023 is almost over and the companies that they talk to have been giving them some guidance for what's going to happen next year. This is when they'd kind of bring their numbers down to maybe a more realistic kind of level for 2024 because now we're, we're almost there and, and and you have a lot more kind of visibility into what's going to happen for next year. And so if this were going to follow the kind of t- typical cycle, the numbers that had started high last year or earlier this year would be kind of starting to come down. The fact that they're not really coming down much is kind of uh, a deviation from that pattern to some degree, an, an upside, a positive deviation, and tells you that uh, things are actually looking pretty decent for next year. And then to your second point, if where we're going to have a recession and the companies, the management of the companies could see that coming, they would be starting to give hints and guidance to the analysts to say, all right, maybe you better you know, bring your numbers down a little bit. It's starting to look a little wobbly for next year. We're not sure how things are going to go. Rates are higher, blah, blah, blah. You should trim your numbers. And then you would see the analysts do that. They, they'll usually follow that lead. And so we haven't really seen that in aggregate, aggregate overall yet so far. So that tells me that the companies are not seeing a drop off in demand coming at least right right now. And I think that tells you that the overall kind of GDP and, and economic growth will be decent, at least the first half of next year. And we'll have to see what the second half looks like. And that the the fiscal support is going to help offset the monetary policy at the macro level. I think at the beginning, you said
0: you're slightly overweight stocks now. I'm looking from a report a few days ago where you said you're neutral. So maybe you, you're marginally more you know, bullish on stocks now. But let's just say you're neutral, is in your macro model, does your earnings model incline you to be more or less bullish than your neutral macro model? And why?
1: Yeah, I'd say the earnings uh, indicators are probably getting closer to sort of neutral readings as well. Uh, They've been quite strong earlier in the year, and are now less strong in the sense of those kind of surprises. I I think we've kind of used up some of that fuel in the sense of, if analysts were, were really too cautious and too bearish sure. earlier in the year, and you had a lot of upside surprises, now they're not as bearish or negative, and the surprises are, are more mixed. So you're not as likely to get as big of positive surprises, but I don't really see a lot of really severe negative surprises coming. So I think there's probably more of a balance now in terms of the earnings trends relative to earlier in the year. And that kind of aligns with the, with the macro models, showing that we've lost some of the momentum in stock prices. Interest rates are higher. The, the, the Fed is probably on the sidelines, but not going to be a, a big source of a tailwind for stocks for a little while. So you're kind of in this not bad, but not great zone where uh, stocks maybe they can grind higher or, or at least be in a, a kind of an upward bias trading range, but not going to go through, through the roof, given that interest rates are probably not going to go down anytime soon much and, and earnings will be fine, but not spectacular. Sam, I interview a lot of people, and I
0: kind of get people's frameworks and where they are kind of oriented. People tend to be, oh, I'm an inflationist, I'm a deflationist. They tend to kind of have a, a core view that they can cyclically change their view around it, but they kind of have a, have a core view. So, for example, if someone who's who's a guest and they're they always think there's there's going to be recession, or they're very bearish, if I either, oh what, they're an extreme bear, if they come on the show and say that they're actually neutral, or they actually think that. Though there won't be a recession, like their neutral is actually very bullish. And so, are you? You know, I think you you tend to be on the bullish side. So, is your neutral actually bearish? Like, is like how bearish can you get? You know what I mean?
1: Oh, I can be be a lot more bearish than this. Yeah, yeah. Twenty twenty two, I was definitely more bearish than this. And and at other times, I've been a lot more bearish than this. And to some degree, yeah, you're right. You have to kind of judge things in, in sort of their their context. And that's true for the, for the market as well. Like I say, beginning of this year, whenever I would do media or talk to clients, all I got was that bear story that you're talking about. It just almost wall to wall. And that by itself told me that it wouldn't take much to be better than expected. Even just, even just not the world not ending, basically, would be better than expected. And better than expected is all, all it takes to make stocks go up, typically. And so things don't have to be great. They just have to be better than expected. And so now it's it's harder to be better than expected because the expectations have risen to back to sort of more normal levels. And that's kind of why I'm a little less enthusiastic because there's just less scope to, to be better than expected now than there was six or 12 months ago. But there's definitely a lot more potential downside that could happen and that I don't see yet, but that could happen if you had big policy mistakes, for instance, or a real big shift in risk appetite or some other kind of macro event, a uh, pandemic comes back or uh, wars and things like that that are, that are hard to, to build into a model. But, but right now, no, I think to me, uh, it's just a bit, a little bit, it's less enthusiastic about the bull case because you've already had a lot of it and people have already adapted to it to some degree. And so the fact that you're not maybe hearing as many big bulls now or big bears is a reason why I should be a little less bullish. And your model, you were overweight equities, but you're getting significantly less overweight
0: at a pretty just looking at your model pretty a fast clip. like what would have to happen for you to be underweight equities? And yeah, tell us about the different things going into your models
1: Right, yeah, the model has shifted a, a quite a bit lately, and so I'm still overweight kind of officially in, in, in what I've written, but I've, I've warned clients that there's, there's, the model is weakened from where it was and Part of that is the the loss of equity price momentum. So all the major indexes globally have really pulled back and, and corrected pretty significantly. And so the momentum that we saw from kind of maybe May, June, July, April, May, June, July, earlier in the year has kind of broken down. And even within the market, you've seen some of the higher risk areas, the, the more volatile stocks have really corrected more than, than usual. And so you've seen a kind of a risk off shift. So that's usually a warning. And that's I picked that up in the models and in the indicators is that when people start buying or d- getting away from the, the the higher risk stocks toward either kind of more neutral or lower risk stocks, that's that's a warning sign that, that needs to be kept in mind. And then if interest rates are rising, if Fed rate cuts are not on the horizon really, and uh, the, the credit backdrop starts to, to creak a little bit, credit spreads have started to widen a- along with the pullback on equities, that can be a warning sign as well. So they're not outright bearish, but they're not nearly as bullish as they were. So you don't have the momentum behind you and you don't have the sort of risk appetite that was there earlier in the year. So that tells me that, okay, you may be in kind of a trading range environment now where it's kind of going to be more choppy. And the fact that stocks and bonds have been positively correlated. Bond prices go down, stock prices go down, and vice versa, which has been not the case a lot of the time historically, but has been the case now. When you're in a higher inflation, higher growth environment, that can be what happens and makes it harder to, to, to judge and makes it like harder to hedge. In a 60-40 kind of stock bond portfolio, you think the bonds will offset the stocks. But lately, it's been the bonds that are more and more risky than the stocks have been. Long-duration treasuries are more volatile than stocks are lately. And that's not the way people think about it. The bonds are supposed to be the safe part, not the not the risky part. And so I think that's been that's thrown off a lot of the traditional analysis and argues for a little bit more caution overall, because you can't rely on the bonds to kind of help you hedge your stock ex- exposure the way you might have in, in past cycles. So that's kind of why I think a little bit more balanced approach is probably going to be necessary and that the, the sort of momentum we had earlier in the year may struggle to to come back. Now, we're getting into November, December, and that's seasonally a better time for the equities. August, September, October are typically weaker in, than they were. So we might see a balance into year end for sure. But I think that being better than expected is going to be a little bit harder going forward than it was earlier this year. What is sort of your
0: strongest held convictions that are most at odds with the mainstream macro narratives that you'd see on TV or you read in all the research notes?
1: I mean, I think for a while I've been kind of on the disinflation side of the inflation trade. I think more people are coming around to that. I still read some people thinking that inflation is going to come roaring back soon or won't go down to, to two or two and a half percent that the Fed wants. I think it will. I think we're, we're already there by some measures and then and, and sort of the official data will we'll get there in the next few months. So I think that's, I think, and the commodity prices are kind of telling you that, and a lot of other metrics that you look at, that after you adjust for kind of the housing lags that are in the data, we're pretty close to those levels already. So I'm really not worried about inflation as a macro concern and haven't been. I think that the economy is still going to hold up better than a lot of people expect. But a lot of that depends on fiscal policy. That's really been a lot of my focus is that the reason this cycle has been different and the US has done better than other economies, and than past cycles is because of fiscal policy. The, all those legislation, uh, legislative acts that I mentioned, CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and so forth, that's the reason why we're doing better than expected. And if that changes, if there's suddenly a big deficit reduction push or cuts to, to spending, that could be the policy risk that kind of tips us over. So I think that's really the risk more so than a banking crisis or something like that, that would, would cause me to get more negative that I'm really watching out for. But I think, I think the U.S. will tend to kind of still outperform the rest of the world. I think Europe and China are both struggling. Japan's holding up relatively well, but... As, sorry? The economy in Japan? Yeah, the economy in Japan and, and earnings estimates in Japan uh, are actually holding up fairly well. But, but the U- Europe and U.K. are kind of mixed, not doing that well. They still have a little more inflation and less growth than we do here in the U.S. And like I say, commodity areas like Canada and Australia are probably gonna struggle a little bit just because I think the commodity cycle is kind of gonna be flat to down. Oil is being held up by OPEC and, 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 and wars and things, but I don't think that's sustainable. There's a lot of oil around. I don't think that's a long run kind of trade. So I do, do, do read about people who think oil is gonna to go to 150, but I don't think that's very likely. Again, at least not in the long run. I think the long run shift is away from fossil fuels. So I think there's gonna be a long run shift that direction. And, and other commodities. If you look at the, kind of like the Bloomberg Commodity Index ex petroleum, it's in a downtrend. There, there's no sign of, of real movement there. So I would not make it a, I'm not looking for a big commodity super cycle kind of a trade either.
0: Got it. So it's funny, the earnings estimates for commodity companies, Copper Meyers, for example, you'd think that most of it is already priced in because. You got one Excel spreadsheet and it's just multiplied by the price of copper and that's, that's reported every day. Like, you, like oh my God, they had a bad quarter because the price of copper is down. You, yeah. I guess the only thing is you know, production, input costs, stuff like that. How do you interpret the decline in earnings expectations for, for those materials companies that you, that you said? Yeah, I mean, c- price of copper is going down, but it's not crashing. It's going down.
1: Right, right. No, and I think some of that is Yeah, it's based on what the, the analysts are hearing from the companies about their own forecasts about long-run price trends and supply and demand in the industry. And so they'll, they'll listen to what they, the companies tell them and what they look at in terms of the overall picture, what they think supply and demand is going to look like over the next few years. And yeah, most of them don't see big upswings. And so I think, again, part of that, I think, is China. And, and part of it is just lack of big-picture industrial demand. From globally, I think the U.S. has been a source of demand because of that fiscal support. But Europe and, and a lot of other areas are not seeing that kind of big swing in in demand for a lot of those those commodities. And so I think that's what they're, they're responding to is not just what the copper price is today, what they think it's going to be over the next few years. Plus the, the cost and things that if even if copper goes up a little bit or down a little bit, if costs are rising, then and like oil is a cost for a lot of them. And so if oil goes up and copper goes down, that squeezes them. Same thing for a lot of chemicals, plastics, and that kind of thing. They, they can get squeezed by movements within the commodity space. And so, so I think it's, it's an indication of, of relatively muted demand and the fact that labor costs and, and other kind of costs can squeeze their earnings as well. So I don't think that there's, a, a, again, a, a big story for, for why you'd expect either the price of copper and other things to go up or for the companies that make it to be especially profitable.
0: that makes sense. So what else is on your mind, Sam?
1: I mean, I think a lot of people have been focused on Fed and monetary policy and and, and overlooked fiscal policy. And I think a lot of people have been assuming that the the big tech leadership is a bubble or has been overdone, but they keep showing earnings that support it. Not all of them, but some of them do. So I think that there's been that kind of shift in mindset of if companies have have done well, is there a fundamental reason for it? And the companies that have done poorly, is there a fundamental reason for it? And what we found is that actually there has been in many cases, that there's not been as many bubbles as people like to, to, to find. But I think that this cycle has been so different than last the previous cycles that it's thrown off all the historical comparisons. Everyone assumes that 500 basis points of tightening by the Fed immediately crashes the economy and the stock market, and then it didn't. But eventually, yeah, it'll slow things down for sure but there's been an offsetting factor. And so I think there's a lot of those things that I've gone into my mind in terms of trying to read what's going on and look through the peculiarities of the data to, to kind of see the story without being too wedded to either the bear case or the bull case. And it's been tough, this cycle, for sure. It's been, data is very noisy, a lot of stuff, other things going on. But when I saw the fact that the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year forced oil prices and wheat prices, a lot of things up for about three or four months. And then they peaked around July and then started going back down again. That told me that narratives can be very different than than the, the reality. Oil was still flowing out of Russia and it still is. It's flowing out of Iran. They're sanctioned too. And there's still plenty of oil around. It took multiple production cuts by OPEC and Saudi Arabia to get oil prices up even a little bit. So that was a clue that there's a lot of oil around. The U.S. is producing record amounts. Everybody else is too. So all the narratives about why oil should go up, everything that was going could go wrong for oil did and didn't even really go up much.
0: Every barrel of oil that's produced gets to the market. There's no hole that they put it in where all the forbidden barrels go. They go to the right. market and sold. And he I was told if I around an oil you know. trader who, you know, who, who knows stuff.
1: Right, exactly. So those are things that have been on my mind is trying to sort of, watch the narrative or what the headline says versus what's really going on and what market prices are telling you or what earnings estimates are telling you that maybe goes against the narrative. And that's worked out pretty well this year. And I think that's going to be the the key going forward is whether it's journalists or people that just have a very strong bias can kind of make a convincing case. But if the data doesn't really back it up.
0: Whoa, 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 Sam, what are you saying about me?
1: Not you. (laughs) You do a good job. Um, Thanks, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, part of your job is to reflect different opinions, right? So you want to bring in different different guests yeah. and get the, get their views. And that's that's very valuable is to, to have people be able to have time to explain why they think what they think and not have it be in a 30-second soundbite. So I think that's, that's why I like this kind of format a lot better is that you can go in a little, a little bit more detail and flesh things out a bit. I think that's crucial in, in this kind of environment.
0: Yeah, so... I'll I'll ask you a question about the fiscal later, but just on the global economy, America, the U.S., a lot of demand for services, travel, hotels has has been off the charts. And as a result, the global manufacturing downturn that's probably been 18 months in the making has not affected the U.S. I mean, you could say like the the manufacturing cycle in, in China is in recession, Germany Germany's in recession. Export-driven economies, it is really tough. And the U.S. has, to a large degree, been shielded from that. But at what point does, for the U.S. economy to, to continue to be well, does Germany and China have to do well? I mean, are we all kind of joined at the hip here? Like, how can it be that the German economy, the Chinese economy is so bad? The, the divergence, ha- it has to converge, right?
1: No, you're right. I mean, the rest of the world in general is not doing as well as the U.S. is and is, is a sort of a, a drag net probably still, which is another reason why I don't think the inflation story is going to be a problem. There's just not a source of demand big enough to cause inflation unless you have a supply shock, which is what we've had with COVID and Russia and even a little bit to Israel lately, and things like that, is that it's just the supply shocks that cause it, not, not demand. And what China and uh, Germany have is a, is a structural lack of demand. That though their economies and the way that their macro policies have been is to try to focus on exports and sell to us, the, the, to the U.S. and to, to to kind of trade deficit countries and to run big you know trade surpluses. And that's now kind of catching up with them in the sense that they don't. There's only a limited amount that they can do that forever. And that what they really need to do is stimulate their economies. By letting their consumers, their households spend more and, and buy things, buy imports, whether from the U.S. or from anywhere else, and balance things out, that would produce more global growth than than, than would be the case if they try to just export their way out of everything, which is basically what they've done for many, many years. And so the U.S., because it's the biggest economy, but also because we have both the capacity and willingness to buy the rest of the world's stuff, means that we're the source for a lot of that, that growth. And then we had all the COVID stimulus and all the the subsequent fiscal stimulus. And that's been helping us be a source of demand. And so now we're also going to be a source of supply in the sense that we're building a lot more manufacturing plants and all these kind of things that have really picked up the last 18 months. Construction for manufacturing and kind of that kind of thing has just like literally doubled in the last year, largely thanks to kind of those fiscal policies. And so, But other countries have not had that. They don't have anywhere near that kind of fiscal support and, and coordinated policy the way the U.S. has lately. And so they're struggling with higher rates and they're also, they don't produce their own energy the way the U.S. does, they don't have the oil production and natural gas production that we do. And so a lot of those things have helped the U.S. economy hold up much better than than China or than, than, say, Germany or a lot of a lot of Europe. But some of that is structural. Germany refuses to run a deficit at the federal level, which that's just their choice. I think that's a mistake, and that's that's limited their growth. China has a lot of debt, but it's mostly at the local level, not the federal level. But they're, they've they done a lot of malinvestment, basically. They've been pulling a lot of money into building apartments that nobody can live in, or bridges that don't go anywhere, or things they don't really need in order to keep GDP up without having any of the real spending behind it to support it. Whereas in the U.S., it's maybe slightly the opposite way. Is there's a lot of spending, a lot of consumer spending. Yeah. And well, so, yeah, not, always- not, not, not enough infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. We need some roads and bridges and now we are finally starting to do that. And so, so I think it's been the fact that the US has been the counterweight to a lot of the rest of the world, but you, you start to run into the limits of that eventually. And that's what I think China and Germany have been have been finding, is that they just can't export their way out of it anymore.
0: Right. So if you agree with my hypothesis, which you know, I'm not saying it's right, is that there has to be a convergence. In, in other words, either Germany and, and China have to exit a recession, or the U.S. has to to enter one. I mean, which which side of the that coin are you on?
1: I think the U.S. will slow down, and the the, the the direction of growth will be kind of lower, not higher, for the U.S. and the rest of the world. I think I don't know that that means the U.S. has to go into a bad recession, but I think you get back to that kind of sluggish growth that we had a lot of times pre-COVID. So I think what we had was a big shock to the system from COVID that is now going to kind of gradually revert back to closer to what we had pre-COVID, which is kind of moderate growth and low inflation, and that the worries about excessive growth will all go away. So and like 4% be-
0: nominal growth, 2% inflation, so 2% real growth.
1: Yeah, I think that would be the, the, the good scenario. Maybe it's a little less than that. But I think if we can keep our monetary and fiscal policy relatively supportive, then we can, we can keep that going. If we decide to go full deficit hawk and slash spending and tighten policy too much, then you're going to get recession possibility going up a lot higher. I think, like say, China and Germany and, and other countries like that either don't have the fiscal capacity or are unwilling to do that. And so that's why they're weaker than they should be. They, they could be doing better. But they also, again, are facing those kind of, you know, in Europe, energy is a big problem. Having to switch over from Russian gas and oil to other sources has been a huge issue. And they also have demographic issues that the U.S. Is, has less of. They're getting older faster and don't have the population growth that that they would need to kind of balance some of that out in terms of uh, demographics. So I think that's part of the, the other part of the reason. But Europe doesn't have a coordinated you know, fiscal policy, and monetary policy is difficult because it's one currency for 27 countries. And uh, I think that's st- another structural issue. It, it goes beyond COVID or anything else that, that's limiting their ability to grow that doesn't apply to the U.S. to the same degree. So on
0: fiscal stimulus if we can group it into three buckets number one covid stimulus things that were enacted or passed when we were in a recession or we were very worried about growth and unemployment rate was very high so people getting checks in the mail ppp that that type of stuff and the second is infrastructure stimulus the chips act you mentioned inflation reduction act you you, you mentioned which are provide incentives to to build a lot of infrastructure, infrastructure, and the third is I would call automatic stabilizers. So, for example, of uh, so when there was inflation last year, eight point something percent was of cost of living adjustment was made to Social Security. So people who received that that was just passed a law doing that. That was just when there was inflation in twenty twenty two, people received a lot more money in twenty twenty three. There's similar stuff to to a lesser degree with tax brackets and the like. Which do you think is has been the dominant or, or how do you ascribe which has been more relevant? And I guess in, in the reason why we haven't had a recession in the US and it, it matters because the tailwinds from the Inflation Reduction Act will be with here, us in 2024, whereas the lingering effects of PPP and all that stuff will, will, will be much less so as well because inflation was lower this year, the automatic stabilizer effect.
1: Right, right. No, I think you, you've kind of outlined it very well that, that you had those kind of three things going on. And I think yeah, most of the COVID, directly COVID-related directly COVID stuff has kind of faded to a large degree. There's still a few lagged effects here and there, money that's still, still getting spent, essentially, for that is left over from that. I think most of that it ended officially in 21 or early 22 and is now kind of faded away. I think that kept us out of a recession then. I think we needed it then. But yeah, it should it should have gone away. Um, but
0: you have the like you have the excess savings, you have the excess savings, which are very hard to, to calculate. And also right. when you say keep us out of a recession, that's true, but I mean nominal GDP was like 15% growing fit at 15%. So we we had right. a huge boom in 2021.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, no, exactly. We overshot, but-
0: and that's why nominal GDP growth has gone down, but going down from 15% to 7% is still seven percent growth.
1: Right. No, I think that's right. Yeah, exactly. That we kind of had that sort of stimulus-related boom in some sense, but it was also distorted because people couldn't spend the money the way they normally would. So you had that that weird shift where people were buying goods and staying home and couldn't buy services, and now they're doing the opposite. They're, they're not buying as many goods, but they're going out and going to hotels and restaurants and Taylor Swift concerts now where they couldn't do it before. And that's obviously the I opposite. I didn't, the see, I didn't see you there. <laughs> no, yeah. Couldn't get tickets. Yeah, uh, I guess different cities, I guess, yeah. Not a, Yeah, yeah, not enough of a Swifty, I guess, to, to line up. But that's, no, that's the opposite of a normal cycle. Normally, services hold up and goods go down when you get hit a recession. Uh, people put off buying a washing machine or a new car, but they'll still go to get a haircut and they're still buying education and healthcare and so forth. And whereas, you know, in, in the COVID cycle, it was the reverse. So now we're seeing that kind of f- f- play out now. But I really do think that those, those infrastructure-related acts that uh, were passed, in 21 and 22 that we're now feeling now and will go on, as you said, for another few years potentially, are really what's now keeping us out of recession and we're much more sort of macroeconomically beneficial in the sense that there they are infrastructure and manufacturing related, they're building productive capacity as opposed to just giving people a check, which is good for spending now, but it's not going to create future ability to, to produce goods and services necessarily. And that's what I think has been the, the biggest benefit. And the fact that we've seen that in the, the earnings estimates for all the building and manufacturing kind of related companies that are they're doing all that, that people are still forecasting earnings growth for 24, even 25, because of those infrastructure related acts. And you're seeing people build factories and respond to those incentives. That's, I think, going to stay for a while. And I think that will both produce growth now, but will also mean that supply will be higher and then reduce inflation pressure And will balance the economy between kind of manufacturing and and services better than it had been in in the past. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. The automatic stabilizers, I think, are important. But again, yeah, they've kind of dialed down some as inflation has come down. And as unemployment is low, so you don't need as much of the unemployment insurance and things like that right now. Uh, But I think letting the the economy kind of run a little hotter and keep uh, unemployment low, employment high has been key. And you're starting to see that even in the productivity data that came out uh, yesterday, the day before. Third quarter was very strong. Second quarter was strong. I think you're starting to see the kind of the payoff from those investments, I guess you'd say, some of that stimulus and from keeping the the labor market tight. That does, in fact, produce productivity gains. People figure out how to use workers better when there's not as many of them around. And so I think that's going to be also a big benefit is if we can keep that productivity up, you can get real growth without inflation and not have to have stimulus to do it all the time.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So keeping the labor market tight, it's not that there are less workers around. It's just that they're less relative to the demand for, for workers. And right. yeah, they, they, they figure out about it. Yeah. That's uh, interesting. So it sounds like you remain in the soft landing camp. Yeah. What, what's it going to take to have to, to get you to move to, move to another camp? What's how, like how, what, what's your level of confidence? You seem pretty seem confident.
1: Yeah, I think I think certainly in the next six months, maybe twelve months, pretty confident that the kind of soft landing scenario. I mean, in some ways, we're already there in the sense that a lot of people last year were forecasting that by now, sitting here today, we would be in recession already, and that the unemployment rate would be much higher and all these bad things would have happened. So the fact that we're not means that we have about one and a half to two percent real growth. We have a low unemployment rate and inflation that's very close to target by once you adjust for housing, t- t- in my mind. So I think we're very close to a soft landing right now. And I think in a few more months, it'll be very clear that we are, that we'll have lower inflation, reasonable growth, and, and, and low unemployment. I think that can kind of go on for another few months, at least, into next year. The, the thing that would kind of move me off of that would be policy mistakes. And by that, I mean, either over-tightening by the Fed, if they keep rates too high or go even higher. Or fiscal policy mistakes if we suddenly decide to start cutting spending drastically and and try and reverse some of these infrastructure related acts that we, we've seen or raise taxes dramatically and become wildly preoccupied with with reducing the deficit balancing the budget like I say I think that's been the problem with with Europe or places like Germany and I think that would be a big mistake that would that would potentially produce much weaker growth or recession given that the underlying drivers are not strong enough to kind of outweigh that. So I think fiscal policy mistakes would probably be the biggest thing that would move me off. Or again, some other shock that I can't predict, a war or a pandemic or something else that comes along. It's a supply shock, essentially, that derails things again. But I can't put that into my models. That's, it's, it's a black swan for a reason kind of thing. But in terms of things that are, are predictable, I would say that most sort of recessions, many of the recessions in the past have been attributable to either monetary or fiscal policy mistakes or some combination of the two, or a shock like OPEC in the 70s. The reason things were bad in the 70s were you had two oil shocks and a major war and going off the gold standard and a lot of other things that happened that a lot of things had to go wrong to produce those kind of bad conditions. I don't see that happening now. So that's why I think it's it's a little less likely to see a 70s style scenario.
0: Right. So you said a, f- a fiscal mistake, but also a monetary mistake of the Fed. Hiking rates further, or you said keeping them too high. So currently, the market is assigning only a 10% chance that the Federal Reserve hikes more. So the market's saying the Fed is done with such a high level of probability, the Fed very much could be done. So, what about the mistake of holding rates too high? Do you think that rates are too high? Like, is your price into your soft landing analysis? Is it priced into your soft landing analysis that the Federal Reserve will cut a few times or even? 100, 200 basis points. Like, What if the Fed keeps rates where they are, which they very much could for a long time, higher for longer?
1: Right. That's only been their messaging. And yeah, I've been expecting them to, to not raise rates any further for a while. I figured July was the last hike and that, that that's that. And I think the data recently has, has confirmed that. And j Powell's statements recently this week, I think, supported that. I don't think they're going to raise in December, and I don't think they'd have any reason to next year. But five and a quarter to five and a half percent is pretty high if you think inflation is going to be two and a half percent shortly. And that's what the market is pricing in. That's what inflation swaps and a lot of those things are showing. So to me, a two and a half or three percent real rate is high. That's tight. Now, you can get away with that if fiscal policy is very supportive. If you have a pretty big federal deficit and infrastructure spending and all that kind of thing going on, yeah, you can live with a a two or three percent real rate. If you don't have that fiscal policy, then that's going to, that two or 3% real rates gonna look too high. And so I think the Fed kind of realizes that and the market realizes that, and that maybe they could cut rates down to, I don't know, 4% next year and still be tight and still be on the high side of history. But it, looking at a two or two and a half percent inflation rate, you don't need to have a five or five and a half percent policy rate. That's just excessively tight, given that demographics and, and, and underlying growth is just not that strong. Unless you have a real big kind of fiscal support there, and I don't think the fiscal support is gonna is gonna go up. I think it's gonna stay kind of where it is or go down. Uh, I don't think you're gonna get any big new infrastructure fiscal policy coming through this Congress anytime soon. So we got it for a while, and now it's kind of the best you can do is hold what you got and wait, and then it'll its effects will kind of slowly fade away. So I think if that's that's the good scenario is that. We keep the policy we have for a while longer, and we don't make things worse monetarily, and the banks and all that are fine, that's the good scenario. If something else happens to either derail the banks or the Fed keeps rates too high, too long, even if inflation goes back to two percent, and they say, no no, no, we're going to keep it at five and a half, that's too high. That's going, to, that's going to cause throw sand in the gears. An eight percent mortgage rate is probably too high. We can live with it for a little while, but it's not going to last. So either something has to break. Or it'll have to come down kind of more naturally if the Fed eases up a little bit and the bond market eases up a little bit, which would be the, the good scenario. So your your soft landing main,
0: your base case is based on interest rates going down. If interest rates stay where they are, 5.25% overnight rate, 8% mortgage rate, 5%, high 4% 10-year treasury rate, your soft landing case, you're getting a little bit more, the case looks a little more shaky.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with how long that goes on. So yeah, a few months or whatever of that, fine. But if it goes on well into next year, and like I say, if you start to kind of lose that fiscal tailwind, then all of a sudden you've got tight monetary policy and less fiscal support, and you don't have global growth like we we're talking about. China's not going to bail you out. Europe's not going to bail you out. There's no other sort of source of, of demand. Demographics aren't that great. You, you would need something else to, to kind of balance it, and so if you don't have that, then you, you, then you would have much more risk of either very slow growth or recession if that all kind of plays out next year. So that's why I think it would make sense for the Fed to next year say, okay, reported inflation has come down sufficiently. We can bring rates from five and a quarter down to four and a half or four and still be, we're not, they wouldn't have to treat it as a crisis or as, as, as easing to, to stimulate just to kind of not be so tight. Now it's been a long time since that's happened. Most of the time, they cut because of some crisis or something going wrong. Yeah, so, when's the last
0: time they ha- that that that's happened? Is is that inflation falls so low, things are so good that inflation falls so much that rates are restrictive that the Federal Reserve just wants to help people out? When's the last, instead of there being a crisis? What's that? Ninety four or no, no?
1: Yeah, probably ninety five. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would say I mean because the two thousand eight and two thousand one two and but those were recession crisis driven things. Yeah, 94, 95, they raised rates a lot, and then they cut some in 95, but the economy basically got a soft landing, and so they were able to at least trim rates from from their peak uh, uh, without having a recession or some sort of crisis to, to cause it. And then you got into 97, 98, where they cut because of the uh, Russia and the Asian crisis and things. But it, yeah, it hasn't been very often that they've been able to cut rates without it being some sort of recession crisis problem like that. So we can hope.
0: Yeah, we, we can hope. And I, I mean, it's been great that the recession calls of last year have been wrong. It's been, it's been right. great news. I hope those calls continue to be wrong. Sam, thanks so much for, for coming back. People can find your work at Mill Street Research on Twitter, but you don't post that often. So what's your what's website? And tell people a little bit about your work.
1: Sure. So yeah, so I post periodically on, on Twitter and on LinkedIn, uh, Mill Street Research on both. Uh, yeah, the millstreetresearch.com is the website where you can get samples of the research. Uh, there's a blog there uh, that I update once in a while. And certainly if you want to reach out, info at, at millstreetresearch.com is the email. Uh, you can reach out and, and ask questions if you'd like.
0: Thanks so much, Sam, and thanks everyone for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube.
1: Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.